Hello and welcome to the 73 Seconds Podcast. This is the show for anyone committed to ending sexual violence, all about how to support survivors and eradicate violence. On this episode, we talked with longtime friend and donor Z Center, Jean Cozier. We had such a blast talking with Jean and hope to make this a reoccurring segment for you to enjoy. Listen in as we talk about Jean's personal commitment to her mission statement, as well as learning more about her nonprofit, Awakenings. Based in Chicago is a space dedicated to making visible the artistic expression of survivors of sexual violence. Welcome. Welcome to 73 Seconds. This is, like I was just talking about, a podcast that is kind of talking more about all the different things that we touched on throughout our first quote unquote season and one of the things that is super important to us is summarizing reflecting and looking at where we've come from basically January so we want to welcome Jean our guest today would you like to introduce yourself well my name is Jean Cozier I have been intimately connected with your mission for well since I was about eight years old Mm-hmm. But I have been active as a survivor, an advocate, a musician, a writer, a person attempting to heal myself, mm-hmm. nonprofit administrator, <laughs> a donor, probably actively since about 1998. Of all of those, how, what do you, has there been like a shift in how you identify, what's your... I'm thinking in like terms of primary, like when you yeah. very first mm-hmm. think about the work that we're doing, how do you identify with the mission? Well, since I'm in a mission environment at the moment, my number one thing is I identify as a survivor of, mm-hmm. of childhood sexual abuse. If we're out in public or we're talking about my life in general, I probably would identify first as a writer. I have been a professional writer since, well, even before I graduated from college with internships and whatnot. So I ran, um, I worked in a, as a staff writer, and I have always worked in the film, which later became video, which later became, you know, I mean, you know how technology is involved, but I have always been involved in the visual media first and mm-hmm. foremost. I worked on staff in a, in a couple of writing producing jobs for Chicago companies for about oh, four, five, six years, was forced to go out on my own after two layoffs in a row ran my own film writing and producing business until about 1998. And that was when a number of uh, events in my life changed and I began, I closed my business and began working exclusively in the nonprofit arena with agencies that battle sexual violence and yours, Z Center was the first. I founded my own nonprofit in 2010, which was called then the Awakenings Foundation and is now just awakenings, primarily because I had all these ideas about healing, uh, healing through the arts and how it connects to surviving sexual violence and nobody had the time, energy, or money to really follow through on them. Didn't want to found a nonprofit, ended up doing so. Um, I am now retired from active administration there and um, I'm primarily a donor, still an activist, and. I work with the kind of the same agencies I've always worked at, with you folks, with Awakenings, and with Resilience, the former RBA. I like to say I'm not just a donor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's pretty important, too. A, a number of things are happening for me right now, so a lot of these things are changing. It's My mind is very active. Um, you know, there, it didn't have much to do there for about a year and a half. 
as I not only was battling the quarantine, but I also had received a cancer diagnosis and had to survive cancer treatment. So a lot of things are changing, and I never really got a chance to find out what the third chapter of my life was going to be. And now that I'm a fish, a sort of a officially retired from actively administration and trying to figure out where I go next. You know, where, you know, where can my voice be used? Because just try to shut me up. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about awakenings. As someone who is like not used to the art scene or I haven't been uh, in the art scene. You're not an artist? No, not even a little bit. <laughs> do, you um, play a, do you play an instrument? No. I mean, and I think about... Do you about, like putting your outfits together? <laughs> I mean, come on, there's, you've got a visual sense somewhere. Uh, I would like to say that I'm eclectic, um, just generally. You were working on something in our craft rooms and club, but what were, you, what, was she, what were you doing? I was crocheting. Yeah, she I crochets. Did, there I you go. I poorly. <laughs> and that's only because my dissertation has consumed my life. Um, but, yeah, I... I just don't see myself in that artistic space a lot. And talk a little bit about how Awakenings came to be and, and how that how art kind of formed your path to that. Well, like I said, I have always been a writer. I have always almost always been a musician, although sometimes a very reluctant one. <laughs> so I would consider myself, and I, I can't, I'm actually very good at copying. Um, when you buy those puzzle magazines and it shows you how to put together a drawing square by square, I'm actually very good at that. But I can't draw something, you know, to save my life. So, you know, and, and Awakening's always kind of considered, it's, it tried to cover those three main areas, literature, visual art, and music. Sometimes with varying degrees of success, music is the hardest. So how it literal how it literally started, and I have to go back here and talk about Z Center again, is I had a cousin named Judith who was like a sister to me. She was a survivor of horrible, horrible um, childhood sexual abuse and sexual abuse from other pe people in her life. And we did not meet until we were adults and became very close. I always say we healed together. Neither of us was really aware of our history. But as we wrote to each other and shared our experiences, it started coming out for both of us. Her first, me a couple years later. And when she died of colon cancer in 1998, I was devastated. I spent three weeks with her at the very end of her life mm -hmm. when she was actually, by that time she'd received appropriate pain medication and you know we were able to spend good time together. She said, I, I want you to do something, you know, so that survivors like you and me can study art. And I said, done. Because at that time, I was already, I already had some nebulous plans about setting up what they call a donors fund at the Chicago Community Trust. And she says, but I said, and I'll name it after you, of course. And she says, well, you know, don't you have to be famous in order for that to happen? So I told her, no, all it took was money. And I thought I had that. So I met with Tori Blink and a woman at the Zacharias Center at the time named Cindy Ringer. This would have been, I believe, in early 1999 because I officially established my donor fund in 98. So I had a meeting and Tori and Cindy were like the first person I talked about this with that weren't totally confused by what it was I was planning on doing. It's very simple to me, survivors. Want to study art? 
give them money, you know. And then everybody started going down schools, scholarships, how will this work, how will that work? And it was not the first time I had to realize that all the ideas I have, which seem simple to me, are not. <laughs> but Tori got it right away, asked some intelligent questions and wanted to do it. It was only years later that I realized how lucky I was that I didn't have to try to shop this idea around to any other agencies because it never would have flown. You know, everybody is too busy staying alive mm -hmm. then and now to really give much consideration to new ideas. So I partnered with the Z Center. We administered the Judith Dawn Memorial Fund for about, mm, I don't know exactly, 10 to 12 years. And so that, at, at, some at some point in the process, it seemed clear to me that the people we were helping, we were starting to see people that needed more than just money, frankly. We were seeing people who had bigger ideas, who needed audiences, who needed support. Uh, it wasn't just a matter of go to your nearest community college and take a lot of, take a couple of art courses, which many, many people did, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I was starting to see people I felt needed more, and I was starting to think along the lines of how do we give them more? They need a stage. They need an environment. They need more. And I guess that's when the idea started sneaking in my head. The also, too, I had been collecting on my own. I had amassed a collection of probably by this time 15 to 20 pieces of survivor art that I had bought from individual artists and I journeyed about the process. It was very much a process of my own healing as well. So I needed a space. I, they, they were overrunning my home. So we needed a space. We needed something more than money for the people that I was working with. And I was, by that time I had already done two or three kind of like live events on this whole idea of the art of healing. Mm -hmm. I had displayed my personal collection. I'd done some speaking on the subject. So it, it kind of all came together when I found about 1,500 square feet on Ravenswood Avenue in Chicago, and I saw what was, what was gonna have to be my gallery, even though I wasn't thinking about that much. I was thinking about like 800 square feet somewhere, and, <laughs> and it will be me for about two years. Maybe in the third year I can afford to hire an assistant. None of it happened like that. I remember somebody at one of your events, and I, no, no, not your events, it was at one of RBA events, RBA's events, and she said, to, she introduced me to someone and she said, this is Jean Cozier, who at long last has made her dream of creating a, an art gallery just for survivor mm -hmm. art. She's finally made it come true. And like, I just was kind of scratching my head and I went home afterwards and I thought, oh man, screw that. Nobody <laughs> works this hard for, nobody dreams about mm -hmm. working this hard. You know, this is work, this is mm -hmm. not a dream. <laughs> you know, if I dream, if, if I dream, I try not to talk about it much, or at least until I figured out a way that it might have a chance of coming true. So that was how Awakenings came to be, much, much harder than I anticipated. It would have been wonderful had the nonprofit arena been different, had, you know, the environment for survivors and people who help survivors been different. And I could have done all this in cooperation with an agency, but wasn't going to happen. So I founded my own, kind of like the way I started my own business. I got laid off twice. I wasn't fulfilling a dream. I was acting out of necessity, which I guess is 
why awakenings came to be. I perceived a need. I thought I had some ideas about how to fill it. And I knew there wasn't a snowball's chance that anybody else was going to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what I love about the creation of awakenings too is it, it started centered around your cousin, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, she was my muse for everything. Now, Awakenings was a step farther than either <laughs> she and I could have envisioned. I've written and journaled and thought about that a lot, too. You know, in the beginning, I always said everything was for her. It was easier to, to do things for her than to do things for me. It was easier to talk about her. And besides, she was an artist. I could show slides of her work. Everyone always wants to look at beautiful artwork. I mean, even if there is a dark side to it, which there was. But, you know, try to get people to read your book. Try to get people to listen to you sing. Oh, if I could do it all again, I do it all over again. I think I'd trade both my ability to write and my, abil and my musical ability for art. It gets people's attention faster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyway, yeah, Awakenings grew beyond what anybody, except maybe the current executive director, <laughs> ever dreamed of. Yeah. While you were saying that, I was just reflecting on the comment that you made that people are busy like they're too busy or trying to stay alive mm -hmm. that really hits me because you're you're talking about how all of these things came out of necessity yes and that's just so true entrepreneurial spirit or survivorship or healing work mm -hmm. all of these things take a back burner to right basic needs yeah I may have told you this story before, but I'd like to touch on it again briefly. She's not here anymore, <laughs> but one woman who didn't know that I could hear her at the time said something about the last thing I need is donors with ideas. I don't have enough budget or resources to work with the programs and ideas I do have. Mm -hmm. And while someone would have probably kicked her butt if they'd known I'd overheard that, it was also very illuminating for me. You know, and I just thought, you know, that's absolutely true. I get it. Oh my gosh. If I'm going to make any of my ideas really happen, I'm going to have to found my own nonprofit. Oh my gosh. You know? So she actually led me to a, a very important insight. Yeah. Branching out is so difficult. We only have so many hours in a day. And just thinking about all the things that we, even here at Z Center, the things that we want to do, mm -hmm. and then the time to do it. I mean, there just isn't enough hours. No. Or manpower. Or manpower. <laughs> or money. Or, right? I mean, there just okay. isn't. It's just, it's just reality. Just call it resources. Yeah. 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 All just all together. Yeah. There, is, there, there are enough. Yeah. What does healing look like? Or what does healing feel like mm -hmm. for survivors, right? Because I think that art piece is a really big piece of it, which I think is why awakening is so important. But yeah. I most of the time I speak primarily for myself because yeah. I know what it is for me. Um, having worked with a number of artists and writers and musicians and talked to them about it over the years, things come to me. Everyone's always asking me, you know, exactly how, you know, exactly how do you heal? Exactly how do you heal from, you know, how does art help you to heal? Oh, we get, we get asked that, you know, Laura tells, Laura, the current executive director at Awakening, she's got some great stories about she goes down to these funding presentations and some panels of people will just ask her over and over again, I don't get it, what does Awakenings do exactly? I don't get it, I don't get it. So, you know, a lot of people don't get it. So I guess I'm in company that, <laughs> company that I don't really get it myself. <laughs> it's about voice. 
It's about power. It's about not being silenced. I personally believe that we are all born with a huge well of creativity in us. In the sense, you know, like take the highest statistic, one out of every three or four. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you take you take a child and do something that's terribly destructive to them. And I'm I don't can't think of a better way to kill it. Mm. To kill creativity. I mean it kills a lot of everything else too. Mm-hmm. I mean I always try to I, I always try to tell people every once in a while, you know, one in three, one in four, what if one of those three or what if what that one of those ones is the next president? What if it's the person that's gonna figure out how we travel to the next galaxy? And we flip and ruined them. Mm-hmm. You know? So um I, I think that creativity is born in us. I'm trying to think of Judith. When I used to write and talk about Judith, I used to say that she was a born artist and there was something in her that would never shut up, you know, no matter what you, and and I guess, you know, or would never not paint, you know, no matter what that could not be destroyed in her. And it kept getting sidetracked, but eventually when she started to heal, it just burst. You know, I remember the year I was out there visiting her, and I think she had painted 100 canvases in one year. I mean, as she started to heal, it just went bam. Mm-hmm. So it has to do, it has, I really do believe that writers and artists, and probably musicians too, although I don't consider myself a born musician, but I think I am a born writer. You know, you can't quite kill it. You know, you can't quite kill it that those people will find a way. I know, I, I think it was in the prologue of my book about Judith, I had heard a story about a genie giving someone three wishes, you know, and I, I, I related to that in some way because, you know, the artist and the writer and the musician, you know, were asking the genie for three wishes. And, you know, the genie told the artist, um, you know, if they cut off your hands, you'll paint with your, you know, if they take away your paints, you'll use a pencil. If they cut off your hands, you'll do it with your feet. And I, I, I constructed something else about what the genie would say to the musician, which I don't remember right now. Should have brought my book. But I, since, since my dilemma, I was the writer and I was having the biggest dilemma at the moment trying to start this book. It was like, you know, I said, the, and the writer said, you know, I'm stuck. I'm a writer with, without a heart, without ideas, without inspiration. And the genie says, tell the musician he can have another wish. <laughs> Writing for me is about not being silent. I grew up with a very narcissistic mother, an abusive stepfather, that didn't agree about anything except that how much fun it was to make fun of me, especially my writing. Most of the things that I tried to do as a writer growing up were ridiculed, unless it was for, you know, a, a class that I got an A in, and then, ooh, I was a genius. I've never stopped writing. I've written one book about Judith. I wrote another book in an attempt to kind of heal the toxicity of my relationship with my mother, and I still consider that to be my, my best writing and my best, my best learning, my best illumination about what healing could be, what healing could look like. Because I look at that book sometime, and, and you know, it's, it's all in poetry, and I hired an artist to do the illustrations, and I'll look at that, and I'll, I, this was, you know, it's been almost 10 years, and I look at it, and I go, I can't believe that came out of me. Mm-hmm. I honest to goodness can't believe that came out of me. I'm trying now to think of artists that I've worked with over the years. I don't know that this is right on the subject, but I've been thinking about my friend Veronica a lot. 
Veronica was a very important artist to us at Awakenings, hideously abused by her father, horribly abused. She's now a nurse in Minneapolis, and she almost died of COVID yeah. during the past year. And I can remember one of the things she wrote for our magazine, and for her it was, hey, I get to use the word epiphany. <laughs> she had read something about cellular change and how you look at how the cells changes and mutate and grow in our bodies. And, and I don't remember, was it every five years? She said, every five years or every seven years, you've got a whole new body. Mm -hmm. She said, this body was never abused. Oh, wow. That was a real um, illuminating moment for her. And she wrote about it. So, you know, I guess, you know, the more you, the more you learn, the more maybe you can find ways to understand, and I, you know, I've spoken on this for years, you are not your abuse, you know, it is part of you, but it doesn't define you, et cetera, et cetera. You guys have all said the same things to survivors, I didn't invent it. But that's kind of part of what you struggle with your whole life, is you keep having to make traumas, and there are more, <laughs> it's not just sexual abuse, there's a whole lot of more of them out there. You keep struggling so that they don't define you. And I guess that's why I write, you know, if, it's part of a process of reconnecting with myself and, you know, did they ruin me? Did they completely screw me over? Am I going to be a different person now? I'll sit down and I'll write about it. And the answer is usually, well, no, because you kind of sound like it. You kind of sound like your old self. I'm not sure I've done a good job of answering that question, but I have spoken a little bit about what healing it means to me. If you want to see what healing looks like, um, the current exhibit at Awakenings, which mm -hmm. you're going to see tomorrow, um, is a beautiful example. One of the saddest things about Awakenings at the moment is that we've probably got like 120 pieces of art, maybe more, in storage. Oh, wow. In storage, there is only so, only so much. Mm -hmm. There's only so much space, you know, and um, the focus has shifted at Awakenings. You know, we are, a, you know... I don't want to get into a whole lot of details, but we were primarily self-funded. We were a different kind of nonprofit, primarily self-funded by me for the first years. And in order to continue to grow and to continue to pursue alternate streams of funding, we had to switch to a different kind of nonprofit. And that changed, you know, that changes a lot of the programming because for five or six years, basically, our programming was whatever I wanted it to be. <laughs> you know, if it was in the gallery, it was because I wanted it to be there. You know, not that I didn't listen, but that was kind of fun. But so nothing really went into storage if I didn't want it to go into storage, you know, and that's all changed. Mm -hmm. And it, it makes everyone at Awakenings really unhappy. Yeah. You know, we, um, we have to keep changing exhibits. That's part of who we are now. And because there's only so much space, that means that pieces that we love, you know, and that we think are beautiful examples of healing can't be on display. And I know they try to work with each change of exhibits. Like we try to work them back in where mm -hmm. there's space or if, if it seems like there's a good thematic connection between the exhibit and the piece. And they do a good job of that. But it is a sad, it is a, it's probably, you know, one of the saddest things that's going on and terms of my life and, and Awakenings life right now, we all try not to think about it too much. Mm -hmm. So we, <laughs> we thought people would want their art back. <laughs> the artists don't want it back. They paid it, they paid it, and they get it out of their 
Oh, they're done. Like here, now okay. you have our healers. I said, I said the stupidest thing I did was underestimate the market, what it would take to create a, an audience. Well, this is right up there. <laughs> this is ties for the stupidest. But I wasn't the only one. Nobody asked Tori. She was, a, you know, because she consulted, you know, between her terms here, she consulted for awakenings for a little bit. She's just flourishes. They don't want their art back. You have to store this. And we're all going like, yeah. <laughs> so how do you find your artists? Do they come yeah. to you or do you do a lot of outreach? I had a lot of connection. You know, having done the Judith Dawn program and worked with C Center and, you know, I had a number of connections that basically could keep our small gallery filled for a while. And we were... It, you know, everyone asks that question. Um, people who are not, you know, associated with the mission, I love to answer it for them because I know they're thinking, oh, there can't be that many. You must have to work really hard. <laughs> oh, no. You know, uh, and in later years, it was more of a problem, you know, trying to pick and choose from what mm. people were coming in. Artists who are working through this crap um, in their art, they are just, most of them, we, we would get a few people that were shy about displaying. Um, only There was only one occasion in all those years where someone didn't want her name used. Mm -hmm. And she had good reason, you know, her the, the, the abuser was in her life, mm -hmm. um, not that far away. Um, but it was, it was always astonishing to me just how almost desperate they were, you know, to have their art looked at and curated and hung on a wall. Um, you know, it was just, it, it, it was moving, it was sad. I would hear from people who'd been to art school that, you know, what we were doing was the exact opposite of what they were told. You know, they were all, in those days, maybe still, they were all told, especially if they were women, oh, you don't want your art to be too personal. Mm -hmm. So to hear that, no, 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 that's exactly what we were looking for. I mean, the number of times an artist would come in with a, with a portfolio and probably, oh, you probably aren't interested in that bad. Yes, yes, that's exactly, that's exactly what we're interested in. So finding artists, not a problem. Finding musicians was a real challenge. And finding writers, you know, once we really got our online literary magazine established, that exploded too. Mm. There was a day that Laura and I sat and in, in three days we read 140 submissions, oh, wow. 140 stories of rape and sexual abuse. That was not a week I want to repeat. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard, you know, I've read, I read every application that came into the Judith Dawn program and that probably numbered in the 500s by the time we were finished and you know, in, in the beginning, I read every submission to the literary magazine, you know, as, as a professional writer, I do have some techniques for distancing myself from mm. subject matter, otherwise I could never go to movies. Mm. But um, it's hard. It takes a toll. I don't have yeah. to tell you that. There's a real burnout factor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's something that I think bears repeating that it's the number one most underreported crime that it happens to one in three now. It's not one in four, it's one in three. And I think people don't, it's not something that people actively think about in daily life mm -hmm. unless you're in this. Yeah. And it's really difficult to share with people who aren't directly impacted or 
don't do this work or aren't uh, in this passion work somehow to really share how impactful that is or how explosive that number is Mm -hmm. and I tend to get I tend to get very confrontational sometimes too nicely I hope but what the heck um you know with people who you know I'll cut if, if they're genuinely ignorant I might and they're nice I might cut them some slack but you know so like I get that question of oh you must have a hard time finding that art I like to say oh no I don't I said you know and I'll you you know I might even use the f word or something I just say just try to keep them away you know by saying that you've just demonstrated to me that you have absolutely no idea what is going on mm-hmm. in this area if one in three people are abused and one out of every I don't know 25 30 50 people in the world is an artist you think I'm gonna have trouble finding art <laughs> right yeah. so you know it was one of those it was it was one of those questions that sometimes I would jump on with glee <laughs> <laughs> Become a Z-Center Survivor Superhero today. Superheroes are committed to ending sexual violence with ongoing gifts. Z-Center is committed to serving survivors through the pandemic and beyond. Your gift provides art therapy supplies, phone line access, self-care kits, and counseling to the resilient clients we serve. The Survivor Superhero Program ensures your participation in our daily mission with your monthly contribution. Your gifts have a lasting impact and make you a superhero our survivor clients need. Sign up at zcenter.org under the donations tab. I'm thinking about these stories that you're telling about submissions and artists and it... I just keep thinking about this idea of power and control and how Mm -hmm. that factors into even how people are displaying their own art and how they're allowed to have their own healing. It's almost like people have been telling them like, well, you can heal, but not that way. That's all. (laughs) Not publicly. Right. Not publicly or not. Right. And I don't want to have to look at it. And there's another question we get all the time. Is your art for sale? I'd say, you know, the artist would be delighted to sell you anything that's here. And no, we at Awakenings don't take a commission. Um, some of that may have changed because our structure is different now. But, you know, it's like, buy it, please. Mm-hmm. We had people who would say, oh, I'm going to get in touch with the artist. The artist would get really excited and mm-hmm. never happened. Mm-hmm. Never happened. Oh, this, is, this is Bridget, by the way. <laughs> Bridget, Bridget is scribing for us today and just... <laughs> Really excited to be here. And is insisting on the opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> I'm okay. so curious. I didn't want to say anything, but now I want to say something. Just I I'm just so curious. When you're saying you struggle to like find musicians, is it just because there aren't a lot of musicians out there? Or is it because like people aren't as comfortable being out in front? Because I know like sexual assault can still be taboo and art you can kind of put out and not be there yourself, mm-hmm. but a musician, like you know, I don't know exactly. Um we were able to find like a number of, you know, it was actually not that hard. We, we found dancers, mm-hmm. which is, you know, close. Maybe when I say that, I'm thinking about the difficulty to put on musical events because mm-hmm. that was really a nightmare. We were able to find, in the early days, we were able to find a woman who was able to serve in an unpaid position for a couple of years as our concert manager or musical director, mainly because um, we had, I, I had, done some things for, I had been, 
I'll confess, I've been a few rules of the Judith Dawn Fund in order to get her some rehearsal space and some mm -hmm. event space. And she rewarded, you know, she performed at the gallery. Fantastic pianist. Oh, I don't know what she's doing. I'll have to look her up. <laughs> so she was organizing our musical events for a couple of years and did a phenomenal job. And we always invited the artists to speak kind of at an informal panel mm -hmm. at the end of our events. And it was always incredibly moving. I, 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 you know, I, I, I don't cry much, but for some reason the musicians always got to me um, more than the others, probably because I've had such a difficult road with music. We probably did not look as hard for them because it was harder to showcase them. Mm -hmm. So if you know any, send them to Awakenings. They haven't done any musical events for years, which is starting to tick me off. So <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I was thinking of as, you're, as you were talking is just like finding your voice or using your voice. And mm -hmm. I was just thinking that's one of the things that we're doing here. Right, we're constantly adapting, shifting the way that we give people voice to, yeah. you know, it's all different. So, yeah, why don't I mean, if you're open, well, you know, one of the that. one of the biggest problems in finding your voice is if you're not clear what happened to you, you know, if you are if you're if if you were molested, abused in any way as a child, it's a little bit different from um, from uh, happening as an adult because. Your memories may be incomplete. You're not going to have very many people helping you put it together. Not if it took place in the family. I tell people, I have written and told people that my life was defined by three major traumas. I lost my father and brother in an airplane accident when I was four. My mother remarried, um, remarried a man and we moved and he was incredibly abusive, not sexually, fortunately, but physically abusive on occasion and very, very cruel and abusive um, emotionally and mentally. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they were on my voice for a long time. And then I was sexually molested by a family member between the ages of eight and 14. It was an older cousin. Mm -hmm. um, he's not dead now, but I'm much freer to speak about all this because basically the whole older generation of my family on all three sides is gone now. So, you know, there were a lot of occasions and things that I couldn't speak about for a number of years. Mm -hmm. I only started trying to figure out what had happened to me in my late 30s. I started to have a number of episodes that I realize now were panic attacks, flashbacks, triggering incidents, whatever you want to call them. And they all involved um, things that happened at night, sleeping in somebody else's house, waking up in the middle of the night and being scared to death and feeling powerless to do anything about it. Like I said, I was writing to my cousin Judith I was, you know, trying to do some research and kind of came together for me, I guess, sometime in my early 40s when at a, at, at a family event or something, I saw the cousin who abused me for the first time in probably 20 years or something, mm -hmm. something like that. And that unlocked, uh, that unlocked a lot of memories, which I spent the next year or two trying to figure out. Um, one of the reasons it was so hard trying to figure out what had happened to me because, because I come from a family with a real history of alcohol abuse and violence and um, domestic abuse. And, you know, there were so many good suspects. You know, who was it? And, and I naturally, my mind naturally went toward a member of the older generation. But because I hadn't grown up around any of them, again, I was confused. So I was trying to find things that could have happened to me on family visits, mm -hmm. you know. So um, 
up until I was probably in my early 40s, I would, would have never occurred to me to, that I was the, you know, a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Very ungrounding. Um, I have also heard people speak about how what really silences you or makes the trauma go deeper is not necessarily what happened, but how badly did you have to keep the secret? Mm. So in my case, I needed very, very badly to keep the secret. Um, I was already, I had already been labeled as a very imaginative child. Oh, here's the writer trying to come out again. I probably had three imaginary friends between the ages of five and 12. I can tell you their names now. One of them was Bill Noity. How the heck I came up with, can't remember the other one right now, I'll think of them eventually, but so anyway, here I'm already being labeled as an imaginative child, you know, and my, my father had, my father, well, my mother remarried, but I know, I, I can vaguely remember um, during the years before my mother remarried, you know, how starved I was for male attention, I'd lost my father and brother. You know, when people ask me why I do what I do, I have finally come up with a good answer for that one. You know, I don't know how not to do it. Mm. It was never intentional. Like I said, sometimes I've, I've, I've wished many, many times I didn't have to found a nonprofit. I wish I didn't have to keep talking about this. I wish I didn't have to keep writing about this. But I have never felt, felt there was a choice. I don't know how to not rip the veil off this yeah. frickin' thing. I mean, you know, it is just, un, it is just unspeakable mm -hmm. that at this point in our evolution as a race, as a culture, as a whatever the heck we are, you know, we still treat it like this. You know, it's got to stop. I don't, I don't anticipate it happening in my lifetime, but it won't be because I didn't try. But you know, it was Judith. You know, I, I even if it, even if it hadn't happened to me, there would be things that I would be doing for her. You know, my stepfather died in 2007. That was wonderful. Um, my, I don't have any shame about saying that. My mother died in 2017, and I unfortunately have to say that complicated as our relationship was, it was immensely freeing for me. Mm -hmm. um, I was her caretaker when she was in a nursing facility for four years. It's really hard to do that for someone you don't really love. Yeah. Uh, it's really only been in the past four or five years of my life that I have felt a degree of freedom and separation from all this trauma. And look what happened. I retire and three months later, boom, worldwide pandemic. <laughs> boom, you got cancer. You know, I hope I live to be 100. I got a lot of years to make up for. Yeah. An intelligent 100. Yeah, I don't think any of us here anyway know how to not do this. Yeah. It just... I mean, because it's not, it's... It's so much more than you were saying too, that 68 seconds, right? Because what leads to that 68 seconds is so ingrained in our society, how we are raising our young people in today's society, right? This is everything that leads to the sexual violence. It's not just working. It's not, it's not simple, right? It's this big, tough thing that we're all working to fight against and there's no well, way it, to it's always It's always about protecting the wrong people and the wrong institutions. Mm -hmm. You know, the people that need protection the least are the people we're running around protecting the most, but it's all about protecting ourselves. You know, don't feel, don't feel like hearing that right now. So, this is your first time here. <laughs> but I always, at some point, have this moment and Sarah's oh laughing at me because it happens, but I think that this is the moment. I know. I know. But Let's I mean, hear it. Let's hear it. Yeah. Let's talk about cancel culture for a moment. 
Cancel culture? Yes. Okay, okay. good. I thought you said cancer, and I, I don't want to do that one. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that one like that. no. So I'm a millennial, and so I right get labeled, right? Mm-hmm. Bridget, you're a millennial, right? Yeah. Sarah, you're a millennial. I'm Bob. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so for those who are not here with us, we have three millennials, and you are a... As a baby boomer, but I almost you're missed, like right on the I almost missed that one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the silent generation. Yeah, I'm almost that. Yeah. So. Oh no, not that. That ends at 1945. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. I'm a baby boomer. I think. Yeah. So this this cancel culture thing. So because I'm a millennial, all of a sudden I get I feel I get lumped, or we as millennials get lumped into this idea that like we just all of a sudden hate everything. We want everything torn down, and you know. Everything is wrong. Everything we've been doing in the world is wrong. It's always been wrong. And I don't really feel that way, but it's interesting. I was watching this documentary or something, and they were talking about cancel culture and how we as children, like millennials, we learned that we have to, like, we were the first uh, kids that really got to say, like, no, that's not okay. And like our parents were like, you don't have to do that if you don't want to do that or whatever, right? Like we were the first ones that were like, a perfect example in this documentary or docuseries or podcast or whatever I was listening to was basically we didn't have to sit at the table until our food was finished, right? If we were full, we were full and we got to leave, right? And so like the generation before us, right? And maybe boomers, I'm not sure. We're like, no, you're going to sit there and you're going to eat it all and you're going to like it and you're going to write until whatever. Or you're going to sit there until you apologize to your father and then you'd fall asleep and my mom would go. Right, exactly, exactly. And so, like, I'm thinking about you talking about these different parts of, like, finding your voice and all of this and it's like, and and sitting with the level of discomfort or, like, having difficulty sitting with this level of discomfort. And I think it's interesting thinking about us as these people with like this cancel culture vibe, which is not really true because there are things that I'm not going to cancel, right? Because we all have a learning curve, but we have this, this idea where it's like, that makes me uncomfortable. And I'm going to tell everybody that I'm going to tell everybody that this is uncomfortable for Mm -hmm. me. This conversation is uncomfortable or this thing that you're doing is makes me uncomfortable or it's not okay. Like consent, right? Like really simple. Like, you know, I feel uncomfortable with you standing that close to me. Like, I need you to ask me for a hug before you just take one, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. And it's, I think, as a general society, and I'm only going to speak for the U.S. because that's what I know. As a general society, I think a lot of people who are older or who this isn't what they've grown up with necessarily, it's like, well, why are you so soft? Or why are you so... It's like, well, it's actually really it's the opposite, I yeah. think. Like Standing it's, firm in your boundaries. Right. Being firm in your boundaries, knowing that things are uncomfortable, saying that they're uncomfortable, and just sitting with that and just being okay with that. And it's so hard, I think, for people to grasp that. Well, but this is the same thing. We, but this is what we've been telling survivors all along. It's right. kind of like, you know, the whole thing of boundaries. And I don't hug people. Don't think I hug people without asking permission first but isn't it funny you know I hear that and I think about those things too though isn't it funny though that the sexual violence taboos have not really changed much mm-hmm. you're no you're still so you're encouraged to tell tell the teacher that you know that they're disrespecting your boundaries tell someone so we can't stand too close but is it any easier to say uncle Peter touched my you know mm-hmm. is it I don't think so mm-hmm. I I think things have changed a little 
but mm -hmm. not really that much. Mm -hmm. And I'm old enough to say that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, you know, people always say, oh, the Me Too movement changed everything. It's like, did it? You know, did it really? Has anything, you know, did it stop? Or did everybody get a whole lot more cautious mm -hmm. for a year or two? I think, I think it brought attention to the group that doesn't right. pay attention to this. Like you said, for a certain amount of time. But has it changed any of the underlying things that we were talking about earlier that lead to sexual violence in a big way? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Just maybe a little bit easier to come forward. You know, I mean, you have the knowledge, maybe the awareness, the experience that there are better ways to get attention drawn to a topic than others. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, I just keep thinking of, you know, I just keep thinking of, you know, what violation really does to a child at an early age. And it's just like, you know, it could wipe out everything. I mean, you know, I have, uh, I have a number of issues, personal issues, most of which I probably shouldn't talk about. But when the topic of money and funding comes up, you know, and people will say like, well, you know, there aren't people like you who have survived this and have the financial resources to do some of the things you're doing. I'll say, well, let's guess why. You know, I can't think of a better reason to make sure somebody never had a better way to make sure someone has no financial resources at all ever, but to use them in a sexual way in the early years of their life. There is... You know, uh, it, it's a handicap that I don't know that many people can overcome. I mean, the people who are awful to me, I've inherited their money. I'm <laughs> using it. You know, when it was just my money, I couldn't do as much. You know, anybody who wants to play the game of this only happens, you know, in this circumstance or that circumstance or people of this color or that color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't, you can't see what you out there in the audience can't see that I just made a big ha ha. Type <laughs> well, I radio. Yeah. I had a I had a support line call mm, three weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, from someone identifying as female in their late forties, and she she wanted to talk to someone, and I'm so glad that I got to talk to her. It was like a, it was a privilege to talk to her. Uh, this person really was struggling with the idea that uh, she went to this gentleman's apartment specifically for sex, from what I gather, mm -hmm. and something non-consensual took place. She was calling for support, like next steps kind of thing. And I, I just heard it in her voice, like the self-shame. Mm -hmm. And I finally got to a place with her after talking, after we talked for a while. And I finally said, you could have gone over there only for sex. That was it. Like you could have gone over there and like, that was the only thing that you wanted to like that person. That was all you were going to do. You guys agreed to that. That was all you were going to do. And that would have been absolutely okay because you both consented to that. And that didn't take place. But it was, it was this, the conversation for the most part was this, trying to reduce the self-shame that had already taken place before I was even involved in the conversation, before she called. It was it was palpable, just yeah, this yeah. feeling of how how dare I want to go out and do okay. this thing and it was not okay because something bad happened and I should have known better. That statement, I was like, oh. 
that's not that's not the case you wanted these things you both agreed to these things and then they didn't happen and you have every right to be pissed off mm-hmm. oh the i should have known better i should have been smarter i played that one for years you know i mean fortunately or unfortunately i do happen to be very smart so it was harder for me to, you know people i i kept saying you know i i should have been smarter than that People would go, Jean, how old were you? You know, I'd say, eight. But I still should have been smarter than that. You know, I didn't get, that's one of the reasons I've been always very grateful for group therapy as opposed to individual therapy. Because I think there's something unique about the group process that is essential for survivors of this particular type of molestation. Because you'll look at the person in the chair next to you and you may be able to call yourself stupid, but you won't be able to call him, her, she, they. You won't be able to call that person stupid you know because you have grown to care about them you know somebody i used to work with called it innocence by association we talk about guilt by association this is a process of innocence by association you talk you know it is through talking and sharing the stories with other survivors that you learn you know how guilty you weren't mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and i think you know i was thinking about this this morning probably because i was you know i got I got a couple occasions coming up where I'm doing some speaking and I knew I was going to be here with you guys. And, you know, there have been times when it was bloody hard to talk. You know, there have been times where people's reactions have made me cry. But if I take a step, if I take a step back and I look at them like I'm looking at them now, it wasn't the times I spoke up that I now feel shame or guilt about. It was the times I didn't. It was, you know, one of the things that I've been working on with another organization of this, this whole idea about bringing your work with the mission into your personal life as well. You know, is this something that you only talk about with certain groups and you won't talk about it, you know, when you have friends over for dinner? Mm-hmm. Because I'm guilty of that. I'm, you know, I've, uh, you know, and I, I've, I've kind of made a vow, you know, these days that if you're eating my food, if I had to clean up for you, no, you're not leaving without hearing. <laughs> you're not leaving without hearing what I do and Here's what. a pamphlet. And as if you, you think go. that's <laughs> inappropriate for the dinner table, then go eat somebody else's mm-hmm. dinner. <laughs> you know, but um, I do. It's not hard as it may be at the time. If you will look back years later, it won't be the times that you speak up that you regret. It's like people say, you know, it's you don't think about how much money you make. You think about the time with your family. I think it's the same thing for us. You don't think about when you spoke up. You think about when you didn't. Mm-hmm. I think about Sarah's favorite phrase. What's your favorite phrase? Is this about the service standards? No. <laughs> What's my favorite phrase? Sarah has forgotten her favorite that, phrase. That personal is political. The personal oh. is political. Now come on. That was that was that one was coined in the sixties. It was, and it's still very relevant today. <laughs> Wasn't that glorious? <laughs> yes, it was glorious. <laughs> yeah. I don't I can't I can't um separate the two. No. No. Or I shouldn't say the two. I can't separate who I am as a person uh, and my beliefs mm-hmm. and like and how I associate because I'm going to go into a room of people and I'm going to be this person. Everybody gets this. Mm-hmm. Everybody. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I think I might have. If told... you tell them people you work for the Z Center, probably their next question is, you know, how did that come about? And there you are. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Uh, I may have told Sarah this story. I don't, maybe, maybe not. But I was in Montana uh, in the beginning of June and we went whitewater rafting. 
and we're in a like raft of 10 people there was four of us in the group and it was really interesting because we were on like this calm patch and we're all introducing ourselves and and it's so of course i don't know why people always do this but they always have to say okay say your name Mm -hmm. like what you do for a living and a fun fact and a fun fact oh god (laughs) every time right like all the time and so of course like of course i end up like going almost last no i didn't go on a tangent but so in front of me was like so-and-so that's retired so-and-so that's retired so-and-so that was really into making jewelry so-and-so that was like all these like cool things like fun things that like either they're retired and they're like enjoying life or they're like driving cross country in an RV. What are all these old people doing on a raft? Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's I dangerous. Mean, well, <laughs> I mean, they, I mean, they were young. They were, I think they were young, um, <laughs> younger, right? Like, so I'm, I'm on this raft and then like, of course it gets to me where like all these people are having these fun careers or are they, they're, they're living their fun lives right now. Yeah. And then I'm like, hi, I'm Christine. I'm, a rape trauma therapist <laughs> and the whole raft is just like the raft sinks yeah. <laughs> that's what ha- that's the response it's always yeah. like how do you do that work i could never do that work uh, and it's like and the yeah. it's like actually like this is kind of what we signed up for like this yeah. is what we wanted to do and like if you ever want to work with a more resilient group of people this is what you do let's yeah. let's talk about the nitty-gritty let's right like let's talk about really uncomfortable things that's what i really like to do yeah. like yeah and so the and it was funny because the raft really did go silent like completely silent glacier national park is like all beautiful and ever and i was just like just so you all know i'm the life of every party <laughs> Did they believe you? The no, no, it was just, it was just so interesting because it's just like, and like even my husband was like, oh, I'm retired, even though like he was a combat, he's a combat vet, so like you know he could have said that, but of course he just says retired because he like wants me to like live in this thing, and I'm like I'm fine, I'll sit here in this, like I love being a trauma therapist, thank you very much. Like, this is my calling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's less of a, why are you in this work now, Gina? It's more of a, wow, that's amazing. I couldn't do that conversation. Oh, but yeah, I couldn't do that. That's insulting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is insulting. You know, it's insulting to be with people who find it necessary to, I mean, it's, it's, they're not saying I'm really dumb and stupid, so I couldn't do this. They're distancing themselves. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do that. Yeah. I like that rephrasing. They're distancing themselves. I wonder so what it is. I love whitewater rafting, but I, I'm not really sure how much more. I'm <laughs> you should go to Glacier, Jean, and just do it. The water is so cold because it's melted like three Ooh. hours earlier. I just don't. I, I love the water. I love rafting. I just don't want to break anything. Mm. Mm. I'm, at the, age, I'm at the age now where you know that first fall and you are going down a road. <laughs> you know, it's they they told us that if you fall off of the raft, you're on your own. Just no, no, they don't say that. <laughs> just float. They were oh, like, wow. don't touch the ground because that's how you get like foot stuck and you drown, right? So like, just float. And I'm like, wow, what a great metaphor for life. Like, if you fall, you just float until you can figure it out again. We were on the border of, of, of northern Wisconsin, and we were with these insane people. We were going down Menominee Falls. It's got mm. like a 20-foot drop, 
and we had these insane people that we went down the first time and then all of a sudden they're going, this time we're going down backwards. <laughs> and I heard one of the guys say to somebody else, you know, you, I saw that you lost your paddle the, the last time. If that happens again, feel free. You don't have to paddle. Just hold on to the sides of the raft. I thought, aha, first thing I did was throw off the <laughs> Just hold on to the raft. So I could hold on to the sides of the raft. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting to me. I didn't mean this to be a large metaphor in any way. That was just a random story. Yeah, but uh-huh. I think it's a large metaphor. But it is really a metaphor. <laughs> and, I mean, when you're holding your paddle, you have to paddle in sync with other people. Uh-huh. And if, like, right. and if you kind of... Um, if you start looking out into the abyss or like whatever by yourself mm-hmm. and you're not paying attention to what's going on around you or you're not like part of that team because it's really like a, t- a team that you're working together to like do this thing together and steer the raft together and all this all this stuff and if you're not doing that you're going to be off sync when you're paddling and you're not going to be listening to what the person's telling you and like you're just you know and so it was just very interesting to be a part of a group right and then also um like I don't know, have this like camaraderie with people that you didn't really know. And I feel like that's a good metaphor for kind of what we do here or group mm-hmm. therapy. Yeah. I tell people all the time, I didn't intend on doing this work. Mm-hmm. That was not even close. So I really resonate with what you're saying about how like, you know, I didn't expect to do this. I didn't expect to do that. I didn't, that wasn't your intention because it wasn't my intention. I definitely. It wasn't in your yearbook. I, I originally was going to be a lawyer and it didn't work out because I was just like, that's just not for me. I need to be mm-hmm. like, the, I need to be around people constantly. There was this metaphor that's like extroverts gain coins, like gain like emotional or uh, like well-being wealth by talking to others and introverts expel coins. So it's not like it's a bad thing that like introverts don't hate people. Introverts just expel their emotional mm-hmm. wealth. Uh, while talking to people. So they only have so much bandwidth in which to do that. Yeah. Um, and so I needed to do something where I'm constantly building up my coins, mm-hmm. right? And so that was one of the things. And then when I moved here and happened to get the job here, I had no idea that survivors were so resilient, so um, unique. Uh, just... Every single moment of my day is so different and I don't think that I could do anything else because it's just so, it's um, invigorating. Yeah. Because it's a, it's a constant uh, positive challenge, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. I know there were, there, there were times when I would just kind of shut down a little bit because it would be like, I can't listen to one more story. I just, you know, because I was in kind of a unique position of... I would either be flooded with a ton of stories or I wouldn't, you know, I mean, it was just, it wasn't like a daily gradual thing, but sometimes, and I learned too over the years that when I was speaking or sharing a lot of myself, and I would tell people this at Awakenings events all the time, please, please, please try to schedule your life so that you're not like running for president on the day after you do an event like this. Try to, you know, try to work it out. So that you're not, you know, going on a job interview or, you know, having it out with your mother or whatever. Try to give yourself a little downtime mm-hmm. after, you know, the big, after a place where you, you know, revealed a lot about yourself. Most of them never <laughs> Most of them never listen, but, you know, it, it is important. I spent years kind of not really understanding that I needed to do that. Mm-hmm. 
So I mean, it it, it is it's it's tough work. I, I I have not been a counselor, which would you know, which would guarantee that I he hear even more stories and they would you know come into come into my personal space even harder. But just in terms of sheer numbers, <sighs> I've heard a lot, and it's you know it's a lot sometimes. Well, and I would imagine I can't uh, say for certain, but I would imagine that writing because um, kind of like what Bridget said that the um, the musicians are there, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to showcase yourself in some way. Whereas with art or writing you can be a little bit more free yeah. because you don't have to actually be there telling that, right? Mm-hmm. You don't feel like, it and, and potentially waiting for that negative reaction, yeah. right, in people, so. Well, people have always felt amazingly comfortable in the awakening space, but of course, we always respected people's right to decline. You know, totally yeah. up to you. The only time, <laughs> I would just get upset with artists who either wanted to co- wanted to name their paintings untitled. No, 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 we're gonna do better than that. <laughs> you know, I just, I have always wanted people to at least try. Mm-hmm. I understand you do whatever it takes for you to feel safe, but at least consider the possibility that if you do take this one little step, you might feel better. Mm-hmm. Just that's all I ask you to do. Feel better, and and if you want a fake name or initials, I will help you make them up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that was fun. that was fun sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like an artistic pseudonym. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask one last question? Of course. Yeah. Okay. I'm just curious because uh, you've spent like so much time and energy and on opening awakening and having it. Like, do you think helping other survivors kind of heal helps you heal? Yeah. Yeah, somebody, um, somebody long time ago, you know, kind of made that resonate with me. I remember, I don't think it was the first time I ever displayed my personal art collection, but um, I'd been invited to exhibit it and speak. Yeah, she, the, the director, the, I think they're still around, so I won't use their name, but the director, she is retired, she's no longer there. Um, the director said to me, you know, you do this, because you know you want to help the people who are creating the art she said but you're also doing this because for you it, it helps you heal mm-hmm. i don't remember whether that was before or after well i must have had a number of pieces by then or i wouldn't have been exhibiting them there but when i started buying the art for myself that was really really illuminating in a lot of ways and i it was only after i remember specifically it was only after i bought this third piece that I was like, oh my gosh, I need to be writing about this. So I was up all night one night, you know, trying to catch up because by that time I'd already bought a couple of pieces and I was trying to get where I needed to be. And that eventually became like this art journal project that I took with me and used and tried to sell at various events before Awakenings came into existence. So in terms of, you know, in terms of personal healing, as a survivor of that, you know, collecting the art and writing about it, that taught me a lot. Taught me a lot about what it what it means to heal. Well, thank you so much for all the things that you had to say. <laughs> thank you for the opportunity to say them. Of course. Yeah. In such good company. <laughs> thank you all for listening to this episode of 73 Seconds. For more information on how to support a survivor in your life, you can head on over to our website at zcenter.org. 
While there, be sure to learn more about how to become a survivor superhero. Join us in the fight to end sexual violence today.